where you have your children with you, uh, you didn't get the memo. So here it is in bright colors. That's the memo. That's where everyone should be. So if you're an adult, you're in the right place. But if you are a toddler, you are not. So if uh, I put one of these out on the table, if, if y'all need a reminder on where to go. And if someone wants this, I'm going to put it right here and you can just get it. But this is going to give us a little more time in, in our classrooms and in here um, to spend on the study because that's sort of the point of our Wednesday night time. And it's also going to give the worship team more time to focus on some Sunday morning development that we're wanting to do. So um, the point of this, this gathering time is study. And so we're going to have um, some, some dedicated time for that. Uh, let me pray, and then we are going to go to the New Testament for the first time ever on a Wednesday night. So let's pray. I pray, Lord, that as we uh, kick off a, a new um, area of study tonight, that you would bless it. Um, Lord, we, we can't get anything out of this if not for the Holy Spirit. If not for you doing something in our hearts and in our minds, this is just sort of a futile endeavor. And so we trust you, Lord, and we ask for wisdom. Um, and we praise you ahead of time for giving us wisdom because your scripture tells us you give it when we ask for it. And so uh, we ask for wisdom and how to receive these truths, how to process them, how to apply them. And uh, Lord, ultimately, I, I pray that the result of our time in the word is... Um, holiness, is sanctification, is the forward movement of your kingdom. Lord, I also just want to thank you for a good break. I'm thankful for the holidays and the times that each of us had with family and friends. Uh, whether that went as smoothly as we hoped or not, we're thankful for it. And uh, that time of just sort of a different pace um, each year. But I'm also thankful to kind of get back to um, the rhythm that we have when we meet on Wednesday nights. So we humble ourselves before you, Lord. Uh, we, we commit this time uh, to your glory, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, the purpose of our Wednesday night studies has been to work book through book through the Bible. And in December, we, or really late November, we finished Malachi. And so that was many years um, in the Old Testament. And so tonight, we will um, begin in Matthew. So you can turn there if you haven't turned there already. So, uh, just a couple questions to get us going. When I mention Zephaniah, what immediately comes to mind? Nothing, right? Because we had that study like eight weeks ago or ten weeks ago or whatever. So, um, I wrote allow conversation after that question. I'm going to cross that out because no one said anything. When I mention um, the gospel of Matthew, what immediately comes to mind? Sermon on the Mount. That's what I figured would be the first answer. What else? Genealogy. What else? Great Commission. What else? Jesus. Fifth answer. Yeah. What else? Parables. What else? What'd you say? Disciples, yeah. So the reason I ask those two questions is to draw out a distinction. As we begin our study uh, of the Gospels, we're moving into more familiar territory. Um, no one said anything about Zephaniah. I'm a little bit down about that because it was a good study. That's right. Uh, can I get an amen? Um, 
But as we move into the Gospels, it's, it's more familiar. And what I want to encourage you to be careful of as we begin this is not to allow the familiarity to breed contempt or worse than contempt, just indifference. As we're starting Matthew, you might be, oh, I've, I've read Matthew. I know the Gospels. I know what happens. I, Jesus was born, and he lived this perfect life, and he died on the cross, and he was resurrected, and then he told us to go and tell people about him. What, what more is there? And we, we're far more familiar with the things that we're about to move into than we were, especially as we were studying like the minor prophets and things like that. So we could open up a minor prophet and be like, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't know that. Tonight, I don't know if there's going to be quite as much, oh, I didn't know that. So I want to encourage you to approach these um, knowing that the goal of this study is not to show you something new. The goal of this study isn't just to to blow your mind with new information that you've never before seen in the book of Matthew, but the goal of these studies is overview. The goal is that in the same way that if you're in an airplane, you'd get a totally different perspective of a city or even a state or even a country, that you would be able to gain different perspectives because of the way that we're studying, that something would come up and this study would help you to say, oh, you know what, I need to go to Galatians if I want to consider that, or oh, I, need, I need to go to Romans 3, or oh, I need to go to Matthew 5 if that's what we're going to be talking about, so that you have sort of this overview perspective. Dever, in his book, he talks about how he lived in Britain for a long time, and, uh, and uh, he was... Uh, the, when he would fly in, it was just popular, there was people everywhere. But then when he would fly back to America, he, he, he realized how unpopulated so much of America was. Like there was so much just wilderness. And so he, he kind of used that to explain like, I never would have thought that because everywhere I live in America, there's a ton of people. But when you have that bird's eye view, that different perspective, you see some different realities. And so that's what the, the aim of this study is. And I want to make sure that's really clear as we're going into something that's probably far more familiar to all of us. So before diving into Matthew, um, I want to take a few minutes, and by a few minutes, I mean the majority of the evening, um, to consider uh, what's known as the intertestamental period. Something happened between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew. And to understand the setting at the beginning of Matthew, we really have to spend a chunk of time looking at what's known as the intertestamental period. So if you have turned to Matthew, you'll see there's nothing there unless you have a study Bible, in which if you have a study Bible, um, let me just take a moment. A study Bible is one of the best resources for Bible study, especially in studies like this, because there's so much overview um, perspective information. And so um, if you don't have a study Bible and you're just opening your Bible, you realize there's, well, there's no intertestamental section. And the reason is, is that that was about 400 years between Malachi and Matthew where there was no new revelation from God. No new revelation from God. Some people call it the 400 years of silence because this was a time after Malachi was done and before Matthew was written there were 400 years where there was no new revelation from God. He wasn't sending new prophets to say new things to his people. All they had was what they had. And for 400 years, that's what they had to get them through this period before Christ came onto the scene. So what that means is that a big chunk of our time tonight is going to be like a history class. All right. So aren't you glad you made it a priority to come to the first history class on a Wednesday night? Now, I... I just finished a history class in seminary, and it was the most boring, terrible experience 
from an academic standpoint that I've had to date. And a lot of it was because it was just history. I found, I, in fact, I, I think I found the history more intriguing than my professor did, which is what made it hard because it was sort of like, and then in this day we did this, and I was like, oh my goodness, this is driving me nuts. I'm hoping to not go down that road tonight as we talk about history. History is very important. Uh, for a people who understand our story, your testimony doesn't start with the day you got saved. You know, God's work in your life doesn't start with the day you got saved. Your story is the story of a people. Our story is the story of a people, and it goes way back. And so when Christians gather and look at history, particularly related to Jesus and God, hopefully it's not a boring endeavor. Hopefully we're able to see things that shed light in new corners and give us insights that we otherwise wouldn't have. Um, When I study history, I have a lot of aha moments. Like, I didn't realize that was related to that. I didn't realize that's where Hanukkah came from or whatever it might be. There's something tonight where we'll get to that. So as I'm going through this, if I look just blown away by something and you see it as common knowledge, please don't tell me because it'll (laughs) rain on my parade and I'll feel like even more of an idiot because there's so many things I'm looking going, I didn't know that. I didn't realize that. And I just spent a whole semester doing that. So we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at this intertestamental period, 400 years. This period is often referred to as Second Temple Judaism. If you're taking notes, that's an important thing to write down. This period that we're looking at before we dive right into Matthew is second period, second temple Judaism. Second period, I'm back in high school. (laughs) Second temple Judaism. And it's 516 BC to AD 70. 516 BC to AD 70. To give you some perspective on time, to kind of step back into where we were in the Minor Prophets, 536 was when the Jews returned from the Babylonian exile. Remember, they got taken off into the Babylonian exile, the temple was destroyed, and then the Medo-Persian Empire overcame the Babylonians, and then they, in 536, started letting them come back, and then in 522, Darius actually gave them money to help them rebuild their temple, and that was during our Haggai study. So that gives you a little bit of perspective on time. In 445 B.C., was when Nehemiah finally rebuilt the walls. So the, the temple was rebuilt, and it was, it was a big deal. And then in 445 is when Nehemiah finished rebuilding the walls. So that gives you an idea on timeline and when it began. The literature of the time, has anyone ever heard of the Apocrypha or the Pseudepigrapha or uh, Josephus or Philo or the Maccabeans? Those things, if you're wondering, where do those come from? Where do those fit? They came about during this time. And the Catholic Church actually still today views the Apocrypha as, as inspired and, and more in line with Scripture, depending on which Catholic you ask. And it will, um, they, they still utilize it in, in their services and in, and in their um, religion and uh, worship. I, I had to be careful because you start talking about Catholicism, it's like, I just feel like... It's, Someone's going to get easily offended, and I don't know why, because I don't think any of y'all are Catholics. But anyway, um, I'm pretty sure y'all aren't. Um, And so, um, but they'll still use it. But these were writings that came from that time, and the Dead Sea Scrolls um, are important literature um, to refer to during this time, and those actually weren't discovered until like 1946, I think. So 
there's all this meshing of history and these important writings and, and things that happen. The Persians ruled from 5th century BC, the, the Medo-Persian Empire, remember, that took over Babylon. The Persians ruled from 5th century BC to the 330s when they were overthrown by the Greeks under the leadership of Alexander the Great. So there was about 200 years there where nothing really spectacular happened. The Jews kind of existed as the Jews. They were still reaping the benefit of Darius, letting them go and rebuild. And they had the temple, they had the walls, they had the, this Jewish state. And then in, things began to change um, began to change under the leadership of Alexander the Great when um, uh, he, they, the Persians were overthrown by the Greeks. Now, Alex was a student of Aristotle. Is everyone just excited at this point? I've mentioned Philo and Aristotle and Joseph. So Alex, Alexander the Great, was a student of Aristotle. And so in my mind, before I've studied a lot of this stuff over the last six months, this was just mush. I didn't really know who existed when and who wrote what and who influenced who. But Alexander the Great was probably one of the main students of Aristotle. And because of that, he had a real passion for unity. Alexander, if you're writing notes, Alexander the Great had a huge passion for unity. So here he is, he takes over this empire, and one of his main goals is, I want to unify everybody. And he felt that that could be achieved by making everything more Greek. So I was trying to get you to understand this guy, and I was thinking in my office today, I was like, I think the way to think of Alexander the Great was a lot like the dad on my big fat Greek wedding. Have y'all seen that? Where he wants everything more Greek, or you can tell him any word, and he'll tell you the Greek, you know, root of the word, and all that. Everything needs to be more Greek for Alexander the Great. So his goal was to unify everybody, and he thought the best way to unify them was to make them more Greek. And that, that, the, the process was called Hellenizing, or that would be like Greekifying um, people. And so under the Persians and the Greeks, though, the Jews didn't encounter much trouble. Things were pretty normal. They were existing. They had the temple. They had the walls. All good. After Alexander's death, his kingdom went to eight generals, and it became sort of a mess. So a big change came about with Alexander the Great's leadership. They, 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 they conquered the Persians, and a big change came about. We want to make things more Greek, and we want to unify everybody. And then he dies, and it kind of starts to become a bit of a mess as the kingdom is divided among eight generals. And from 320 to 198 BC, I would write these down and just review them later because it's really helpful to wrap your head around what's happening here. From 320... To 198 BC, the Jews were controlled by the Egyptian um, Ptolemaic Empire. This was a time where the Jews were Hellenized or Greekified. And during this time, it began to be more forceful. And in fact, um, this is when the Jews began to suffer more under that leadership and under that rule. The temple was in fact turned into a pagan shrine at one point. Um, The... um, there was outlawing of customs and outlawing of these Jewish laws. And in 198 BC, um, the Seleucid or the Syrian empire to the north of Palestine gained control over the Jews. And this is when it got really bad, when the temple was in fact turned into a pagan shrine. And um, has anyone ever heard this before? As I'm mentioning this, is anyone like, yeah, I'm totally tracking with you. 
Raise your hand if you're like, heard this and I'm tracking. Raise your hand if you're like, this is totally new to me. That would be me. I, I would be raising that hand. Okay, so we're about half and half. Okay. So the, um, the Syrian Empire to the north of Palestine gains control over the Jews, and they turn the temple into a pagan shrine, which is quite offensive. What, what would a Jew feel like at that point? Import your senses, remember? Hopeless, yeah, that would be a problematic thing. The thing totally central to our walk with God has been turned into a pagan shrine. Imagine, and we don't even care that much about our building, but if someone did that here, we'd be really hacked off, right? So them, they were, so much of the temple was central to their movement, turned into a pagan shrine. Um, A few different groups emerged during this time. Uh, One was the Hasidians, which were the pious ones. Those are like the Hasidic Jews. Um, They emerged during this time. So this is where we begin to see some divisions, and these divisions are important for us to understand as we move into the gospel story. When you say Jew, you could mean a lot of different things because of these divisions. It wasn't just a Jew as a Jew as a Jew. During this time, lots of divisions began, and there was less of a focus on the temple and more of a focus on teaching where they gathered. So it wasn't just let's focus on where we go and what we do. It's let's focus on this teaching. Rabbis began to um, have the, the rabbinic system came about shortly hereafter, and it was a matter of what did they say. And then all of a sudden, these people over here have their traditions. These Jews over here have their traditions. Those Jews over there have their traditions. And there's all these divisions within the Jews, which makes the word Jew not so clear. You have to understand what kind of Jew they were. So the Hasidic Jews, the Hasidians were the pious ones. Another group that, that emerged during this time were the Pharisees. So if you've read the gospel, you know who the Pharisees were there. But who they are in the gospel wasn't who they were when they emerged. The Pharisees emerged during this time, again, that 198 BC and, and forward era. Um, and the Pharisees were the separated ones. So the Hasidic Jews were the pious ones, and the Pharisees were the separated ones. Originally, the Pharisees were godly men who sought reformation. They didn't like the Greek influences. They didn't like the outlawing of their customs and their traditions. And so, originally, they were godly men who sought reformation. R.C. Sproul says they were the first Puritans. So this is important, right? Because if you don't know that, and I said Pharisee, you wouldn't think, oh, yeah, Puritan, reformer, wholehearted, way to go. You would think um, self-centered hypocrite, right? Because that's what they were during the time of the New Testament. By the time of the New Testament, they were self-righteous hypocrites who were not even barely a shadow of how they originally started. Now, in 175 BC, write that date down, Antiochus Epiphanes took control. His name means the manifest of God. Do you think Antiochus Epiphanes was a humble leader? Yeah, he is the manifest of God according to his name. And in fact, throughout um, some of the prophecies, you've seen the abomination of desolation. And there's many who would say that that, that's referring to this crazy whack job. He was marked by demented and bizarre behavior. He was violent and he was in control. He was a major leader starting in 175 BC. So we're, we're less than 200 years before Christ here. The pious Jews 
called him um, Antiochus Epimenes, which means Antiochus insane. So the irony, Epiphanes means manifest of God. Epimenes means you're crazy, insane. He made the Sabbath, circumcision, and Hebrew scriptures into capital crimes. So if you had Hebrew scriptures, if you observed the Sabbath, or if you observed um, circumcisions, those were capital crimes, meaning if I find you with your Hebrew text, I'm going to kill you. Now, the Septuagint, the Greek version, which, again, there was big Greek influence, that's okay. But you got the Hebrew version, we're going to kill you. Or the circumcision or whatever, we're going to kill you. So this began to get way more violent because of his demented and bizarre behavior. He made all those things capital crimes. And in 167 B.C., he sacrificed a pig on the sacred altar of the temple. Okay? Has anyone heard this story? Raise your hand if you've heard this story. Okay, fantastic. I think we're 50-50 again. He sacrificed a pig on the sacred altar of the temple. And what this did was this triggered a spirit of Jewish revolt. Now, if you're a real history buff, you'll probably fill in in blanks. I'm, I can't spend all the time on all the stuff. And so we're moving um, on bullet points here. But what happened here was he sacrificed a pig on the sacred altar of the temple, and this upset the Jews, as you can imagine. And it didn't just upset them, but it in fact triggered a spirit of Jewish revolt. In 164 BC, Mattathias, we get some good names up in this section, Mattathias, he was an aged priest, and he had five sons, and he said, boys, it's time to throw down. And so Mattathias, this aged priest, leads a revolt. And after his death, his leadership fell to one of his sons, Judas, who they called Maccabeus. And his nickname was the Hammer. Isn't that awesome? That's so cool. So Mattathias' awesome son, Judas Maccabeus, nicknamed the Hammer, leads a revolt. It's like, look. We're not going to let this happen anymore. You, you just sacrificed a pig where you shouldn't have sacrificed a pig, and it's on. And his, um, he, his hammer weighs, um, he, through it, he and his successors eventually won independence, and they won certain concessions from the rule of that time. The concessions that they won were religious freedom. The hammer brought religious freedom, pretty awesome. The temple was opened up again. <clears throat> they cleansed the temple And the big celebration of lights of that event is what's now known as modern-day Hanukkah. I didn't know all the details that there are to know about this until very recently. I was like, that's Hanukkah. I mean, I knew about Hanukkah, but I didn't know about Hanukkah. I didn't know about the hammer and Hanukkah. And so so that's what's known as Hanukkah. So in 142, the Jews gained full freedom through this revolt, which is pretty cool, until 63 B.C., So, like other things that started off good and kind of turned bad, that was the way with the Maccabeans. The Maccabean rule became really corrupt, and they became self-centered, and they became power-hungry, and they weren't quite as they had started. And so, it was interesting here because the Maccabean rule became so corrupt that the Jews asked the Roman general Pompey to come and restore order. So they're like, ring, ring, Roman General Pompey, can you please come restore order? The Maccabeans have lost their minds. So Pompey, General Pompey, 
does what they asked. The Romans at that point conquered Palestine. So when you look over and see all the turmoil over in Palestine, areas around there, Syria, things going on, it's, it's way older than our country. It's way older than, than most of us, um, I think, realize. And, and it was going on far before even this stuff happened. But this is what was going on during the time of Christ's coming onto the scene. And so uh, General Pompey came and the Romans conquered Palestine, but they brought Roman rule with them. So come help us, we're going to help you. But what happened was they brought Roman rule. And in fact, Pompey walked right into the temple, opened it up, and walked right into the most holy place. Why? Because he was Pompey. I conquered. I'm in control. I'm going to exercise whatever freedoms I want to exercise by walking wherever I want to walk. And in fact, there's stories, I was reading some stories today about how the Romans didn't understand why the Jews were so offended. Like, he's General Pompey. He can go in the Holy of Holies if he wants to. <laughs> and, and they didn't even understand why, why the Jews were so offended. Um, and at this point, suspicion and ill will began between the Jews and the Romans, and it spread for decades. So this, that animosity that existed between the Jews and the Romans began with General Pompey, and it continued for decades to come. And the Jews eventually rebelled, like hardcore rebelled, we're going we're gonna to rebel. And, and the Romans destroyed the Jewish state. So the New Testament opens with Israel groaning and restless of the Roman rule. That, that's what's going on here. They're groaning and they're restless of the Roman rule. In 37 BC, Herod the Great was installed by Octavius and Mark Anthony. Octavius is who would later become Caesar Augustus, okay? So follow all the points here. Herod the Great, installed by Octavius, who would later be Caesar Augustus, and Mark Anthony, and in fact, he would later rebel against Anthony and Cleopatra. Herod was known as the puppet king of Rome. If you're writing down something in your notes, that'd be something to write down. Herod was known as the puppet king of Rome. Essentially, Herod, you can be the king as long as you do whatever the Romans tell you to do, particularly um, uh, uh, Octavius and, and Mark Antony. So he was king, Herod was king when Jesus was born. And Herod, Herod was the one who was killing baby boys in Bethlehem, according to Matthew 2, 16 through 18. And Herod was eventually succeeded by governors, the most notable being Pontius Pilate. So now we got our bearings, we're, we're here. So eventually Herod the Great came on board. He's the puppet king of Rome. The Romans, the Romans tell him what to do. He can keep, do that. He's killing baby boys during the time of Jesus, because of Jesus. Matthew 2, 16 through 18 indicates that. And then eventually he succeeded by, there's, there's different steps in there, but eventually became governors. And one of those governors was Pontius Pilate. So during this second temple Judaism, that this big intertestamental period, um, divisions grew between Jews due to differences in interpretation of the law, as well as continued cultural pressure to be more Greek. So some were like, I don't care. The, I'll do what the Romans tell us to do. I'll, I'll do whatever is needed because with, with the Roman rule, they, they brought all kinds of really important infrastructure, infrastructure like roads, like that's where the Roman road thing comes from, Paul making use of the Roman roads um, to, to, to evangelize. Um, they're they're uh, 
there are all kinds of infrastructure with, with monetary issues and, and sort of city structure planning issues. They were really wise in all of that. And so they brought a lot of good things, but um, this caused a lot of divisions between the Jews because obviously some Jews did, just really didn't like it. Some Jews really didn't care. Um, the best known groups that came from this whole, these divisions with, that came among the Jews were the Sadducees, who were sort of the uh, aristocratic elite. And <laughs> no, if you weren't a Sadducee, no one who, other people didn't really like you. So the Sadducees liked each other. And then there were the Pharisees, who were those who were the set-apart ones. Then there were the Zealots and the Essenes. And the Zealots, what, what do y'all know about the, uh, the Zealots? What? Full of passion. And how did they often express such passion? Rebellion. And how would they often rebel? Violence. They were the ones who would take up, pick up swords and, and go and try to rebel. They were sort of the, the original um, crusaders, and it didn't, it didn't go well for them. In fact, there was a time where they were rebelling against Herod the Great, and there was sort of this two-year siege. <coughs> and rather than um, succumbing to Herod the Great, like thousands of zealots decided, you know what? Mass suicide is a better a better option, and they, and like, they didn't have, like, <laughs> like, they, they fell on swords and killed themselves, mass suicide, because they were so passionate about not submitting to that leadership. So, this gives you an idea. I mean, you've got the aristocrat Jews, you've got the set-apart pious, you know, reformer Jews, you've got the Essenes that we're not going to talk a lot about tonight, you've got the zealots that were sort of the, you know, light your hair on fire and go attack your enemies kind of, kind of guys. And so, um, a Jew was not just a Jew, and these differences were important during the time of the gospel. Most of the differences came from their distinctive traditions. Um, most people in the land of Israel didn't actually belong to any of these groups. During this time, most of the people in the land of Israel didn't belong to the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Zealots or the Essenes. Most of them were just preoccupied making a living and taking care of their families. That's kind of how it played out. The religious stuff wasn't quite as important to most of them because they were too busy working in a growing economy and going to work and making money and taking care of their families. And so, um, some Jews were devoted to the Jewish state. Some Jews were devoted to the nation. Some Jews were really devoted to Jewishness and they were devoted to religion. Other Jews were genuinely devoted to God. That's really important because that brings us to where we are because that group of people that you found to be genuinely devoted to God were among some of Jesus's earliest followers. So those who were devoted to God were among some of Jesus's earliest followers. So this important history brings us to the book of Matthew with greater understanding of the context and what happened between Malachi and here. And I hope it's helpful. There's a lot of facts and I'm I'm usually okay at reading faces, and there's only like two that are saying, I'm blown away right now, and most of the others are, are not. And so, um, so they're, they're helpful details. They're helpful to see sort of how things happened and why this was a perfect time for Jesus to come on scene. There's a word pleroma. In the fullness of time, Jesus did what he did, and it was in God's perfect timing. And these are the details. That's the context that makes up the perfect time. 
in the fullness of time, Jesus came, and that's where we're at. And that's why those details are, in fact, very, very important. Whether they're super exciting or not, they're very important. Does anyone know how many people are currently on earth? Seven billion? I think 7.125 billion was the last hand count that they took. Um, everyone raise your hand if you're on earth, and they got 7.125 billion. <laughs> Um, does anyone know how many of those 7.125 billion claim to be Christians? About, just about, about 30%. So over 2.3 billion claim to be Christians, and that is the largest um, religion in the world. Um, some people think that um, uh, during this century that'll change, and... They might be right. I don't know. Um, but just think about that for a minute. Over 7 billion people, about a third of them are Christians. In 1910, there weren't as many people, but in 1910, the number of Christians was only 600 million. That's a little over 100 years ago. So what I want us to consider as we open up these Gospels is what exactly happened 2,000 years ago that changed more people worldwide than any other religion I mean, you're talking Hinduism and Buddhism and other more obscure things that have been around for thousands of years. And just 2,000 years ago, Christ comes onto the scene and the world is literally changed. The belief systems of people are changed. What people hold dear and near and their view of eternity has changed. And so I'm looking at this and I want us to approach it with that understanding of what happened where... 2,000 years ago, people changed more worldwide by this than any other thing, yet it still has a profound effect even two centuries later. In 1910, there were 600 million Christians. Now there's over 2 billion. I mean, that is very significant that what happened during these pages that we're going to look at had that kind of an impact. So, Dever has a note in his, in his, he said, Christianity just burst onto the scene and he goes into all these really obscure examples of stuff I didn't know what he was talking about because that's how Dever is. He's real smart. He's like, oh, that's a lot like in the 1900s where such and such did such and such. And he gives these examples, but he gives all these examples of things bursting onto the scene to try to express, man, Christianity just landed and it landed hard and it had an impact Culture was rocked, beliefs were rocked, prophecies were fulfilled, entire systems were changed, and it was all because of Jesus Christ. And so, you know, that whole notion of, well, he was just a nice guy, a Jewish carpenter, and I think people overestimate um, how important he is. Really? I think he's pretty important. I think he turned the world on its head. I, and in fact, heard a, a uh, it was an interview years ago by Bono of, of U2, and if you don't know that you should just leave no i'm just kidding i'm just kidding um uh but he you know someone was talking about jesus and and asking him about it in a <laughs> in a profanity laced interview where he dropped like more f-bombs than anything i've ever heard but it came to the part about jesus and he just kind of real, real soberly said he said i find it hard to believe that a guy who's not really important could turn the entire world on his head that was all he said it was, it was a pretty profound statement but that's what happened here. Everything changed. So Matthew, the bureaucratic, tax-collecting, pencil-pushing scribbler, 
is one of four men who present a very unified picture of Jesus Christ. We have four Gospels. And why do we have four Gospels? Well, because it was God's design that there would be four men who would present a unified picture. There are differences within the Gospels. Ben's explained it before as like, why would this guy say this and this guy say this? And he's explained it before as if, if you see a car wreck and some person says, well, the guy came in from the left and hit the guy on the right. And the guy's like, no, he came in from the right and hit the guy on the left. They can have different perspectives depending on where they're standing and what they're, how they're watching. And so there's different perspectives within the Gospels. But the cool thing is, is they all present a unified picture of Christ. And so we're starting with Matthew. Matthew in particular presents the newness of Christ with an understanding of it being firmly rooted in the past. And this is, this is significant to our, our study this week and next of Matthew. His view of Christ is one of Jesus, the realities of Jesus, everything that came on board when Christianity um, burst onto the scene that is very, very firmly rooted in the past. So my question for you, if you were to ask an unchurched person today, who Jesus was, what kind of answers do you think you would get? Or to put it another way, if you were to engage a lost stranger and inform them that you really wanted to tell them about Jesus, what would they be expecting to hear? Yeah, some people just think he's just totally made up. Okay? What are some other unchurched perspectives on who Jesus was. He was like this nice guy. Yeah. yeah. Michael Bolton. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Gentle, sweet, very tan, yet blonde, followed around by, no, followed around by small animals and small children. Is that what you said? Yeah, lambs. Lambs really loved him. Yeah. <laughs> what else might people expect if you were saying, I'm going to tell you about Jesus and they didn't know much about him? What would they know? Ethical? Good teacher? Take it to heaven. If I don't want to go to hell, Jesus is the answer. Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of a, a moral path that's maybe more beneficial than the not moral path. Yeah, I, I, there's, an, there's a, a reality in our country of people who um, grow up in youth group and church, and when they turn 18, they go off to college, and then they don't darken the doors of a church building again until they have kids, and they want their kids to be raised in the church. And so it's, it's exactly what you just said. It's not really all that important to them, but now that I have kids, I want it to be important to my kids. So it's almost like, well, this is more for, for children to, to teach them important things and establish some foundation that has to do with morality. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. If the way to heaven is being good, Jesus teaches me how to be good. That's a great answer. Because I think that's, that's, that's sort of the perspective. Like, if, if I tell someone, you know what, let me talk to you about Jesus. I mean, a lot of times it's like, oh, man, because it's guilt. Oh, you're going you're gonna to make me feel bad about what I did last week or earlier today or whatever. And so um, some people have a view that, well, if being good is how I get there, Jesus is the one who tells me how to be good. 
Go ask your kids, just as a little experiment, who is Jesus? And just see what their first answer is. It'll be telling, and it'll help you to have some direction on if you're keeping in track in step with the Gospels or not. Um, lots of different views about Jesus. Um, Dever mentions that most people, if they were to pick up a book, right, which is what we're doing, if you were to pick up a book to read about Jesus, most people would expect to find probably two things. One would be like the religious innovator, right? Well, a religious innovator who could sell himself and teach people how to sell him, marketing genius, connection genius, communication genius. Hey, this guy must have had all the right things to say in all the right ways to all the right people at all the right times to gain such an immense following 2,000 years after his death. That's probably what you would expect if, if you didn't know any better. Or if you wanted to learn about Jesus, you might expect the, the hero story of the guy who pulled himself up by his bootstraps and he started out as a poor carpenter boy and then he was a king, you know? And so it's sort of a hero story, a self-made man, but that's not what we find at all in the book of Matthew. Rather, in here, we find someone who thought and taught and indeed who embodied and personified what people had been taught, not just for decades or centuries, but for millennia before him. It was as if history itself had been prepared for Jesus. So that word pleroma, this fullness of time picture. What do we find in Jesus? We find someone who, it's almost like everything leading up to him was about him. Everything that was said before him, this entire law, this entire system, the ups and downs of empires, the rule and reign of different people, the the. the the, uh, the patristic father, the, the fathers of our faith, um, Moses, um, Aaron, um, you, you name the, the good kings, um, David, all of it. It's almost like he just embodied it. He, he thought it, he spoke it, he lived it. He was the embodiment of history. It was like history itself had been prepared for Jesus. That's, what it, that's the way Matthew describes it. It's like all this stuff happened. So it's not that this isn't important anymore. It's just this is the importance of the Old Testament is found in Christ. That's Matthew's perspective. And it's not okay, according to Matthew, to just have the New Testament. Like all you need to know is New Testament, what you have about Jesus, because the history is so very important leading up to it. It's like history itself was written for Jesus. So our outline for this study is going to be this. Um, we're going to have three questions. What does this book say? Was Jesus more new or more Jew, and who is Jesus? That's what we're going to focus five minutes on right now and the entire study next week. Turn over to Matthew 1. Start in Matthew 1 and skim the subtitles. What are the high water marks of Matthew? We've already mentioned them, but I want to hear them out loud. What are the high water marks of Matthew? The birth. The birth. Yeah, and the killing of the children. What else? John the Baptist preparing the way. What else? Flip through it. Get, get dirty. Get down in it. I want, I want us to familiarize ourselves with Matthew. Temptation. Miracles. Sermon on the Mount. Calling the disciples. Parables. Lots of parables. Sending out the disciples. 
What else? There's like a few big ones we haven't even touched on. Yeah, the crucifixion thing. That's a big one. What, what else? The resurrection. You kind of got to mention them together. And what else? Yeah, lots of miracles. Baptism. Genealogy, his ascension. There's so many important things in the book of Matthew. What I want us to see as we get acquainted with it, I want to encourage you all to read through it some this week. If you read this out loud at a normal pace, not like a mighty mouse pace and not in a boring pace, um, it's about two hours to read it out loud. So if you take a couple minutes a day to just sit and read it quietly, you can actually get through most of Matthew and just begin to acquaint yourself with the Gospels. That's a really good thing for Christians to do. Like I, I, I don't want you to walk away from this and be like, I mean, I'm, I would, I'd read through Haggai, but Matthew, we're Christians. <laughs> we, we aren't just converted by the gospel. We're, we're sanctified through it and we continue in it. And it's the thing that helps us to continue. We're actually going to talk about that on Sunday with Paul on this movement in Rome. So I, I want to encourage you to read through it. Familiarize yourself with it. Consider some things that stick out to you. Matthew presents Jesus' ministry in seven sections. I'm going to briefly outline them, and then we're going to dig into them next week. Seven sections. The first four chapters are introduction. That's where we have the genealogy and birth and those things. First four chapters are introduction. The last three chapters are Jesus' suffering, his death on the cross, and the resurrection. So the bulk, that's two. The bulk of the book is the middle five sections. And they're chapters five through nine, chapters 10 through 12. And I'm giving these to you so that as you look over this this week, you kind of have an idea on these sections. And I want you to consider why they might be called particular sections. Chapters 5 through 9, chapters 10 through 12, chapters 13 through 16 and a half, and chapters 16 and a half through 18, and then chapters 19 through 25. We're going to explore those next week. And we're going to ask those questions that we considered earlier. Was Jesus more new or more Jew? And who was Jesus? And I want you, as you read it, given the history that you heard tonight, all that stuff that happened with the Jews leading up, the, that, that second temple period, and, and, and leading up to, to Jesus Christ landing, being born, I want you to read this and think about what it must have sounded like to the Jew who lived during this time to the Jew who had recently experienced or was in the middle of experiencing Roman rule, to the Jew who still had family members that talked about when that pig was sacrificed in the wrong place at the wrong time, to the Jews who had, were thankful for the Maccabeans but then called General Pompey, for the Jews who had gone through. I want you, as you read it, I want you to think about what it must have been like for the Jews, what kind of change it would bring about, and then I want you to think about what it would have been like for the Gentiles who are completely alienated from these promises um, that we've talked about for the past however many years we've been studying our Bible in this study. The children are apparently playing wall ball, and that's my sign. Um, but let me pray, and um, really, please make it a priority to, to at least spend a little bit of time uh, looking through Matthew in preparation for next week. Lord, we come to you now. We're thankful for this time tonight. Um, I'm, I'm really thankful, God, for your timing. Um, God, in my own life, I get frustrated and I feel like things happen and they could have happened in different ways and the timing could have been different. 
But Lord, as we study just tonight, just looking at everything that happened in the Old Testament, looking at what you did during the 400 years leading up to the birth of Christ, I'm really thankful for the reminder that your timing is perfect, that your timing is exactly what you want it to be. And I pray that as worshipers, we would humble ourselves before you and acknowledge um, how much higher your ways are um, than ours. Uh, we love you, Lord. I, I do pray that everyone in this room would be able to take some time to, to read through uh, Matthew this week, um, to, to take a look at it, to dig a little deeper, um, and to consider what it must have been like to hear and see the changes and the fulfillments that Jesus brought um, in and through his ministry and his time on earth. Uh, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that 2,000 years later, we have every reason to sit and study this and to worship you and to respond with lives that are clearly about your kingdom and not ours. Uh, we love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.